Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Miss Brill by Catherine Mansfield. First published in a magazine called The Athenaeum in uh, 1920. And uh, I don't remember how I originally came across this story. Um, I think I was looking for public domain stories that I could read with my students that weren't too long. And boy, this is a great, great story to read with students. Um, it, it, it's so good, I think, because it always has the intended effect, no matter how jaded the student is. Wow. Did, did you find it to be effective? I found it to be a very moving story. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how one knows what was intended, it certainly has an effect, and one can assert that it was the intended effect. But mm. it, I, it certainly was effective for me. Uh, I believe that probably that was what Mansfield was after because the writing is so exquisitely nuanced and controlled. Indeed. Yeah. Um, which I, I think would be clear. It, it's I think it's clear from the very beginning. I sort of like to go over the very beginning of it in some detail to – Mm -hmm. share my sense of what that is but um the story as a whole is uh is really remarkably simple in terms of overt observable plot um a woman named miss brill is uh, uh preparing herself to uh, get dressed and go out to the public park on a sunday to sit and take the the air and enjoy the the scene uh, the overlooking the sea and listening to the publicly available orchestra where we're in some European place. Uh, and uh, what we get is a th third person limited narration. That is, the narrator is absolutely outside of uh, everyone and, and can see everything, but only sees through the eyes of Miss Brill and reports thoughts only of Miss Brill, although Miss Brill can see if a couple doesn't talk or overhear if a couple does talk. And she goes out uh, and in her thoughts and in her observations about what she sees, we come to understand that this outing, this Sunday outing is really in many ways, the high point of her poor circumscribed life. But mm -hmm. but she has such love for the savoring of this life and such a, a joy in her understanding that she understands these people uh, that she comes in the course of this particular Sunday to suddenly realize that that she and all of these people the the dandy, the uh, the conductor of the orchestra, the old couple, the young lovers, each of them has a role. And it's as if all of life were a play. And they're not just people, but they and she have this heightened life because they are actors. And she's an actress in this grand, beautiful play. She believes that. And 
And then a, a young, a couple of youngsters sit down where an old silent couple had sat previously. And she overhears them. She's become very good, she believes, at overhearing and enjoying other people's conversations. Um, and what she overhears is a really nasty set of observations about her. Then we get a couple, uh, we get ellipses. She, we then come back to her in her room, taking off the, the fox stole that she had put on and uh, trying, trying to, to enjoy her life. And yet, as it says in the last line, uh, somewhere she heard someone crying, which suggests a dissociation from herself, as in fact, thinking of herself, her whole life as being just that of an actress represents some dissociation. So we begin this story, I think, feeling enormous sympathy for mm -hmm. this uh, warm hearted woman. And finally, I think, come to feel pity for this deluded spinster. Uh, and yet, I don't think that we necessarily think of ourselves as better than she, because we uh, share a sense that people should not have spoken badly of her. And all of us wish that we had more happiness than we do. Um, it's a, a very, I think, powerful, humane, and sad story about a misplaced individual trying to find her, her role in life that is in both senses, her role as an actress in the play of life and what she could do in life. Mm. You, you put it very well. I think that, I mean, you're even a little more charitable to her than I usually am. And I, I find myself, you know, utterly sympathetic for her position and dread that my own position in life never come to anything like the position she's found herself in. Um, but uh, there's a scene within the, t the story uh, of another, uh, there's a few other people like her who go to the park on Sundays who she sees there. But there's one specifically who she calls the Ermine Tuk, uh, the uh, uh, fur hat, right? Uh, describing her hat. And I, I want to read that section. I'm sure we'll jump around, but I think that this is this is the part where in rereading the story, I think she's um, she's almost like oblivious to the mirror that there's, there's so many mirrors in this story, but the mirror that is this woman. She says, and now an ermine took and a gentleman in gray met just in front of her. He was tall, stiff, dignified, and she was wearing the ermine took she'd bought when her hair was yellow. How does she know that? Well, that's part of her thing is she gives background. It's almost like she's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, she can tell everybody's life history from what they look like or what they say. But actually, it's all fantasy, right? right. Now, yeah, well, bought the ermine toque she had bought, uh, wearing the ermine toque she had bought when her hair was yellow. Now everything, her hair, her face, even her eyes was the same color as the shabby ermine. And her hand in her clean glove lifted to dab her lips 
was a tiny yellowish paw. Oh, she was so pleased to see him, delighted. She rather thought they were going to meet that afternoon. She described where she'd been, everywhere, here, there, along the sea. The day was so charming, didn't he agree? And wouldn't he perhaps, dot, dot, dot. But he shook his head, lighted a cigarette, slowly breathed a deep puff into her face, and even while she was still talking and laughing, flicked the match away and walked on. The ermine took was alone. She smiled more brightly than ever, but even the band seemed to know what she was feeling and played more softly, played tenderly, and the drum beat, the brute, the brute, over and over. What would she do? What was going to happen now? But as Miss Brill wondered, the ermine took turned, raised her hand as though she'd seen someone else, much nicer, just over there, and pattered away. And the band changed again. So that's her in a certain sense, another version of her, uh, you know, another person who's trying to make a connection with another human rejected. And instead of instead of feeling that horror on her face, in her eyes, in her voice, she puts on a smile and pretends perhaps or maybe actually does see someone else across the park who will possibly pass the time of day with her, make a real connection with her. It's, this is, uh, I was going to make the argument that this is a fantasy story in a, in, a, in a kind of large sense, but it's kind of a horror story also. Well, I think it's a story in which characters fantasize. And I think that our sense of their lives is that they are horrible. But um, I wouldn't put the story in those genres. I think of it as, in fact, as as sadly realistic. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's that's the thing. Is she lives in a fantasy world. Yes. Her entire her entire view of the world is a series of layers of fantasy, and when it comes to that end, and she loses that pathetic and so heartrending little semblance of fantasy she can manage to put over her own feelings and her own reality. Um, she's destroyed. Yes. Yes. And she doesn't even know it. That that's what I meant about dissociation. Mm -hmm. At the end, that last line is, uh, but when she put the lid on, that is, the, the box in which she has her own uh, fur, her fox stole. When she put the lid on, she thought she heard something crying. And that something could have been her own voice, the sense of the fox stole, which is a metonym for Miss Brill herself. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that ermine toque, that, that woman whom she identifies only by her headgear, um, is the most accurate mirror of Miss Brill. Mm -hmm. That Miss Brill doesn't see it already explains to us, uh, reveals to us her capacity, despite her, her belief in the subtlety of her understanding, it shows us her capacity, in fact, for blindness, for suggestive blindness. Um, and... I, we see this from the very beginning. That's why I'd like to start with 
to to begin the story with a close reading. Mm-hmm. Although it was brilliantly fine, the blue sky powdered with gold and great spots like white wine splashed over the jardin public. Miss Brill was glad that she had decided on her fur. Now, the word fine, I think, has a couple of meanings here. Uh, It was brilliantly fine, meaning it was a really terrific day or it was uh, something that was good to uh, to live in or it was something precisely understood. That is that the 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 light made things shine with great distinctness. Mm-hmm. Although it was brilliantly fine, and notice the internal rhyme coming up with wine, although it was brilliantly fine, the blue sky powdered with gold and the great spots of light like white wine splashed over the Jardin Public, light like white wine. Those words merge into each other gorgeously, light and like, like and white, white and wine, splashed over the Jardin Public. Miss Brill was glad that she had decided on her fur. My goodness gracious. To to congratulate yourself on having chosen a particular garment? But she congratulates herself for reasons that we come to understand. Uh, This is a rather shabby garment, and she has to fix it up. Uh, This fur, in a way, is her. And what we will see, I believe at a deeper level than is made explicit by the story is that by putting on the fur, she believes that she is properly costumed to take that role in the public gardens, that using some other creature's skin will make it so that she has a place in the world and pass. And that's Mm -hmm. what the ermine toque does as well. Not, the actual headgear, but the woman who is identified by the wearing of another creature's skin. An ermine toque is not known as ermine simply because of the fur, although one could suppose it, but ermine comes in many colors, so it would be hard to know for sure if the toque is ermine. But the fur that Miss Brill puts on, we know, in fact, is a fox stole because she gives us, or this Mansfield gives us a description of it. She had taken it out of its box that afternoon, shaken out the moth powder. Okay, so if it's been in moth powder, that means it was put away for the summer. So it's the autumn now. Things are dying. It's a brilliant afternoon, but it's the end of the season. And it may, in fact, be the end of Miss Brill's life. And giving it a good brush and rubbed the life back into the dim little eyes. She has to work to make this thing alive. Who rubs a mink coat? You don't. But a fox stole, which has the head, you see, and the paws attached, that you might want to buff up to get the eyes to look bright. What is happening to me, said the sad little eyes. Not Miss Brill. That sentence ends oddly. Oh, how sweet it was to see them snap at her again from the red eider down. That turns out to be the bedspread uh, that Miss Brill has taken the stole out on uh, and to put down on. Uh, but the nose, which was of some black composition, wasn't at all firm. It must have had a knock somehow. Never mind. 
a little dab of black sealing wax when the time came, when it was absolutely necessary, a little rogue, yes, she really felt like that about it, little rogue biting its tail just by her left ear. Well, that's a very good description of what a fox stole looks like. Um, but not to put too fine a point on it, this fox's nose is out of joint, <laughs> right? It's been punched in the nose somehow, and Miss Brill, who's who is the fox stole owner, somehow doesn't know it. How is it a little rogue? It's a little rogue if it has gone astray, if it has gotten itself punched without ever Miss Brill recognizing it. Well, in fact, that's what's going to happen in this story. She gets punched. She gets pummeled by those terribly rude remarks of the youngsters in the public gardens. And she doesn't even know that she's the one who's been punched so that at the end she heard something crying. That was the little rogue. She is this fur. And I think you're absolutely right in seeing the ermine toque, that is the woman so identified, as being a very strong mirror of Miss Brill. And the fact that Miss Brill cannot recognize herself in the mirror makes us so sad for this woman whose fantasies are so lovely and generous. She sees young lovers. She sees happy old people. She sees friends everywhere she looks and constructs backstories of rich and lovely lives. But in fact, when we see the very first couple, that old couple who sit and say not a word to each other, it's not at all clear that they are enjoying each other's company. They may just be going through the rote motions that they've fallen into after years of dull marriage. Uh, Miss Brill doesn't get it, but God, she wants it. She's such a romantic and she so, is. and so disappointed. And the horror is that her, her, her I want to say her narration, it's not her narration, but it's, it's almost like she's telling the story. We're so close to her mind. The horror of it is that we are, as readers, as appreciators of, of fine writing, seeing what a brilliant sort of creativity is within her. And the way she looks at the world, it's beautiful. Um, there's this line on the second page that I, I never hesitate to point out to my students. It's just how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. Listen to this. Um, and the band sounded louder and gayer. That was because the season had begun, whatever season it was. For although the band played all year round on Sundays, out of season, it was never the same. It was like someone playing with only the family to listen. It didn't care how it was being played if there were, weren't any strangers present. Wasn't the conductor wearing a new coat too? She was sure it was new. He scraped with his foot and flapped his arms like a rooster about to crow. And the bandsman, sitting in the green rotunda, blew out their cheeks and glared at the music. And then this is the, the just beautiful, beautiful imagery. Now there came a little fluty bit, very pretty, a little chain of bright drops. She was sure it would be repeated. It was. She lifted her head and smiled. A little fluty bit, a little chain of bright drops. It, that is what a flute is, right? It's a a stick going down with uh, several what look like drops, like droplets coming down. Yeah. 
it's 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 beautiful imagery and that also describes the sound that a flute makes um bright drops i i I just think this is amazing but it doesn't just do that like nice writing it's also the foreshadowing of her horror her tears that are always about to burst forth from her throughout the story there's all these little hints that there's something wrong with miss brill even before she gets that whack in the nose later on yeah she's always suppressing a kind of a sadness that's just below the surface. Yes. Yes. And we can see it because it's written so, so cleanly. So, Mm. so gorgeously. She was on the stage. She was on the stage. She says on page six, no wonder she enjoyed these afternoons. Right. Shy feeling. Let me back up a bit. Um, this, the, the idea that she had a part to play every Sunday, this explained why she had felt queer, shy, telling, uh, feeling at uh, telling her English pupils how she spent her Sunday afternoons. Right, so now we know she's in France, Jardin Public. It's the season. It's autumn. So this means it's the time when people want to come out now. They're back from their summer vacations. If the sea is visible, but we're at a place where the band can play outdoors year round. We're probably somewhere in the south of France on the Mediterranean coast. So she is there as a as a hanger on. Right. She has a uh, not much income. She lives alone. She has her English pupils. So she's she's teaching English to mm-hmm. French folks. She felt this queer, shy feeling at telling her English pupils how she spent her Sunday afternoons. No wonder Miss Brill nearly laughed out loud. She was on the stage. She thought thought of the old invalid gentleman to whom she read the newspaper four afternoons a week while he slept in the garden. She had got quite used to the frail head on the cotton pillow, the hollowed eyes, the open mouth and the high pinched nose. If he'd been dead, she mightn't have noticed for weeks. She wouldn't have minded, but suddenly he knew he was having the paper read to him by an actress, an actress. The old head lifted, two points of light quivered in the old eyes. An actress, are ye? But of course, none of that has happened. She's just thinking of what would happen if she told it to him. What has happened is that she's been eking out her meager income by, among other things, Four afternoons a week reading a newspaper in English to someone who is so old and uninterested that all he does is use her as background noise in his garden. And she is so inured to the small opportunities for social interaction that the world has given her that she finds this actually okay. She she thinks of it. And thinks how it can be even better. How you can remain optimistic, having been ground down as this woman clearly has, is in a sense heroic. And I think that's one of the reasons that I do feel great sympathy for her. And one of the reasons that I find this such a moving and in some senses horrifying story. Hmm. And uh, it's just her not only does she come to the public garden on sunday she also every sunday she also comes to the public garden four other days a week 
um, and reads to an old invalid gentleman while he sleeps. No, no, that's not in in the public garden. Uh, it says to the garden. That's right. That's not the Jardin Public. Okay. Right. In any case, she's her greatest interaction with human beings other than her students, who she can't really tell what she does during her free time, is to read aloud to a man who's sleeping. This is this is so sad that I almost want to burst into tears as as I think about it. That's horrible. And then the the very next time, uh, right after where we saw that, the, the in her mind, the the old man saying, "An actress? I didn't know I was being read to while I'm sleeping by an actress." Right. The the very next part is her feeling about this that she comes out of this double fantasy she's put herself into, and then says, "The band had been having a rest. Now they started again, and what they played was warm, sunny. Oh, beautiful description. Yet there was." Just a faint chill, a something, what was it? Not sadness. No, not sadness. A something that made you want to sing. Yes. Oh, that's better. Right? <laughs> she, She's always about to cry. She's always about to despair and always finds a way to avoid it. The tune lifted, lifted, the light shone, and it seemed to Miss Brill that in another moment, all of them, all the whole company would begin singing. The young ones, the laughing ones, who would be moving together, they would all begin. And the men's voices, very resolute, brave, would join them. And then she too, she too, and the others on the benches, they would come in with a kind of accompaniment. Something low that scarcely rose or fell. Something so beautiful, moving, dot, dot, dot. And Miss Brill's eyes filled with tears. Oh, because she's so happy? I don't think so. And she looks smiling at all the members of the company. Yes, we understand. We understand, she thought. Though what they understood, she did not know. Now, this is such good writing that it, it, it's almost like it's, it's a psychology course. <laughs> I mean, I cannot believe how close and beautiful this writing is to almost seeing te telepathically somebody come to a horrible realization um, that's been bubbling below the surface in the unconscious for a long time. Uh, before we get to the, the, uh, the honey cake and the almond and all that, uh, there is a line earlier on that I think telegraphs, again, the ending so wonderfully, um, just such good writing. Um, She's describing the other people who come to the park. Uh, she knows because she comes to the park every Sunday. And it goes like this. Other people sat on the, on the benches and the green chairs, but they were nearly always the same, Sunday after Sunday. And Miss Brill had often noticed there was something funny about nearly all of them. They were odd, silent, nearly all old. And from the way they stared, they looked as though they'd just come from dark little rooms or even... even cupboards that's her yes all yes. of these lonely people this is like a beatles song right <laughs> right at the right at the end she she takes that box puts the puts the stole in to the box and is about to put it away in a, a cupboard and of course she lives in a cupboard too her apartment is just a room 
And it's a dark little room, just like the poor little stole lives in. Oh, my God. What pathos. Yes. The, the control of the writing here that allows us to feel this is exquisite. The, the passage that you had read just a moment ago, not the, but the one before the last, where they understood, but she, the, what they understood she didn't know. Just at that moment, a boy and girl came and sat down where the old couple had been. They were beautifully dressed. They were in love. The hero and heroine, of course, just arrived from his father's yacht. This is still Miss Brill fantasizing. She has no way to know. The hero and heroine just arrived from his father's yacht and still soundlessly singing, still with that trembling smile, Miss Brill prepared to listen. Right? Now, she'd been disappointed before because the old couple whose seats they are now taking um, hadn't spoken at all. No, not now, said the girl. Not here. I can't. But why? Because of that stupid old thing at the end there, said the boy. Why does she come here at all? Who wants her? Why doesn't she keep her silly old mug at home? It's her fur, which is so funny, giggled the girl. It's exactly like a fried whiting. Ah, be off with you, said the boy in an angry whisper. Then tell me, ma petite chère. No, not here, said the girl. Not yet. Now, that exchange, which Miss Brill clearly hears, right, that's her stole that looks like a fried whiting. It's she with the ugly old mug. That whole passage for the first time in the story is presented without Miss Brill's thoughts coming through. This is just what the third person omniscient narrator can can see, can hear, and we can see it and we can hear it. And now we want to know how does Miss Brill take this direct assault on her self-image? It's at that moment that we get the ellipses that separates the body of the story from its ending, because the very next lines after not yet are on her way home. She usually bought a slice of honey cake at the baker's. And we find out that she is always thrilled if the slice happens to have a bit of almond in it. So that makes it special. However, one of the things that the narrator does not say, but I think the implied author wants us to ask is, why doesn't Miss Brill just ask for a slice that has the almond in it? She is so self-effacing, her self-esteem is so low that when she gets back, she puts her metonymous fur away and is roguish no more. And we wish that at least that little bit of spirit had not been extinguished. There's, there's one thing that I didn't get the first time I read it, but I'm pretty careful when when these things come off and i know i want to point it out her fox stole that looks like a quote-unquote fried whiting a whiting is a kind of fish right is also her we know that but her name a brill is a fish it's a flounder basically it's a little fish that has two eyes on one side of its body and lives at the bottom of the ocean and tries to hide in the background. She is this. It's almost as if you could miss that. But in looking at a flounder, you also see, because its mouth is sort of 
it's like a normal fish's mouth, but the eyes are on its side. It looks like what a fox looks like when it's had its skull removed from its fur. The eyes, instead of being on either side of its head, are now on the same side. And the uh, horror of that image is that it's true. It's not like they're just being mean to be mean. In fact, they're whispering. She's overhearing. She's eavesdropping. This is her main activity. And, and then she judges people as to, you know, what was good and what was bad. At one point in the story, a little boy picks up a violet uh, that a lady has dropped, a uh, flower. And she hands, she gets it back from him and says, um, Miss Brill says, she didn't know whether or not to judge it properly or she didn't know whether to admire it or not when the woman throws it away as if it's poisoned, the flower. That's her whole perspective is that she is judging everybody and admiring and she never participates. And when finally she's noticed and people take note of her and she hears that, it's the ultimate rejection that she it's almost as if she's going to put that stole away in the cupboard and bring out another cupboard, uh, something else from the cupboard down another box, open it up, get all the cosmoline off of it and fill it with a bullet and put it. You know, this is this is the ultimate in horror story because she, her world has been destroyed. And I I. Never fail to be affected by the by the story. But there's always more to say. <laughs>